Fury Young and B.L. Sherelle are the duo behind Die Jim Crow Records, the first non-profit record label in United States history for currently and formerly incarcerated musicians. DJC Records' mission is to dismantle stereotypes around race and prison in America by amplifying the voices of the artists. As a pair, Fury Young and B.L. Sherelle form a perhaps unlikely but unsupportable duo. Young is a white Jew from New York City who has not experienced incarceration. Cheryl is a queer black woman from Philadelphia who has been heavily impacted by police violence and incarceration. Their leadership and commitment to values of representation, fairness, passion for causes and love for art are the core of DJC. Bia Cheryl, Fury, Dai Jim Co. Records, welcome to The Creative Process. Hi, thank you for having us. Good morning. Good morning. You know, it's an amazing initiative and it's had a, a series of iterations, but you know, you're the first nonprofit record label in the U.S. for currently and formerly incarcerated musicians. Just tell us how it, it came to being, because I've heard of anything like this. Sure. Well, I'm the founder and I got the idea in 2013 when I was a wee young 23 year old activist and I had been um, studying history at Los Angeles City College. And I took this class on genocide that had a huge impact on me. And it also coincided just the timing with the Occupy Wall Street movement starting. And so then two years later in 2013, I was reading The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And the book is about how mass incarceration is like a a modern day racial caste system. And I just heavily related to the book. I grew up around some impacted people. I had a mentor who was formerly incarcerated named Alexander Prison, who was actually Muhammad Ali's bodyguard. And I just got the idea to do an album because I was listening to a lot of concept albums like Pink Floyd, The Wall. And it started from there, just a little seed and a spark of just this idea for this one album. And then over time, as I'm sure we'll get into in this interview, it just evolved into an EP and then a record label and a nonprofit. And here we are. And you, VL, you met, you didn't meet face to face, right? I mean, this kind of collaboration and partnership formed gradually. Yeah, I actually, I was incarcerated in Pennsylvania. I was on my way out my second stint in my 10th year of incarceration, Fury reached out from a, a TEDx that I did while I was incarcerated. And he reached out to the band, just let us know what the program was. Or, you know, at that time, it was an album. And I, I wrote two songs for the Dodging Pro EP, which one is headed to the streets. So I wrote that while I was incarcerated. And when I came home, I was the vocal performer on both songs and along with Anthony McKinney and C. Will and... That, that was my first professional gig. Yeah, it's so interesting that you can hear that in the music. And I was wondering for you, your selection process for the musicians and the artists, is there a kind of way, you know, you know someone else who's been inside by the way they carry themselves behind the eyes. When you hear music that has been created inside or after getting out, I mean, can you just tell? For me, I can. It's like an extra step of creativity or ingenuity. I can't explain it that exists. Just simply because everything that you do in prison requires that extra step. 
So like if you want to eat something good, it's going to require an extra step or creativity or ingenuity. If you want to look nice, you might have to put creamer on your face for foundation or something. I mean, it's just so many different things that people do that are incarcerated to try and heighten the quality of life. So it goes into everything. It goes into, even if you get a letter, right? It'll be like super well thought out, super written, you know, might have some illustrations, stuff. It's just always above and beyond. And I think that the music inside, it thrives on the ingenuity that just takes place. So I'd spoken to Nicole Fleetwood and she celebrated visual artists who are incarcerated or have been incarcerated. And I just don't know what the restrictions are in terms of all that goes on there. Yeah, so like inside, it depends. There's all different kinds of and conditions. So, you know, for instance, when I lived on a unit called JC Unit, which was a very neo-structured unit, it looked like a titanic bowl. It's kind of like the things you see on TV, right? Doors, you know, two to a set of very, very institutionalized looking. You can, I could play my guitar in there. I could, you know, sing to the heavens anyway, because I'm just locked away. But then I lived in a dorm on LB, and that was half walls, eight to a cell, no closed space. And I couldn't play my guitar. I couldn't, you know, sing there. I couldn't do these things because of the way the, the dorm was set up. So it just, it's all the terminal where you live, how you live, the conditions in which you're living in. If you're in solitary confinement, of course, you have access to none of that. But you can, you know, bang on your cell and you can go crazy and nobody will care. Whereas if you're in administrative segregation, which is similar, but a tad bit different, you can have certain things. You have certain tools, certain instruments and stuff like that. But you're still locked away. So you have, you know, agency you to do things with those resources that you require. So it's all about where you are. Is it a maximum? Is it a medium? Minimum. It's just so many different variables that would determine, you know, just how creative you'll be able to be and how many resources you have. Yeah, I guess from writers who've written about their experiences inside or people have said how they, you know, they get to know themselves and their imaginations. And I'm just wondering, does the sounds of being in prison, does that, do you hear that in the music? How does that affect your voice? So, yeah, again, depends on where you are, but we do have this song. I can't think of what it's called, Siri, but. Battle, is it Battle Cry? No, the one with the masses where they're in the, you can hear all the, like, prison sound. Oh, it's called It Took a Bid. It Took a Bid. Yeah, it's not out yet. And they're ramping, and you can hear, like, the yards. You can hear, like, the PA system. You know, we actually put some other sound effects in there, like basketball or the concrete, you know, like, different sounds. Prison is, like, a loud place. There's always an undertone Mm -hmm. of like, white noise and, and yelling and arguing and laughing and cards playing and just it's just all kinds of sound it's always like undertone which is interesting because it makes it kind of uncomfortable out here when it's like the dead of silence or even the dead of dark because it's always light it's always it's never dark so there's certain white noise or white light that always exists at the end of battle cry also a little easter egg you do hear noises that michael tennyson one of the artists recorded in the gym, which was right outside the van room that we recorded in. Well, in this marching on Within your heart is a faithful song Hallelujah There's not 
shaking ground, but on rock I stand. Within your perfect will, I am. I am forever in your hands. And oh, oh, can you hear my battle cry? I just gave him like this little zoom recorder and he stood outside getting sounds. And then I put that at the end of battle cry because battle cry was recorded in one take all live. And I kind of wanted to capture that feeling of like this guy at the end of the day, just playing his guitar in the band room. And then outside there's all that white noise that BL is talking about just guys, you know, like high five. Oh man. Yeah. You know, just, just kind of talking shit in the gym right outside. And you hear the intercom too, if you listen really closely, it's like right at the fade out at the very end. And also too, another Easter egg within that is like, there's, you, you can hear these two guys saying, oh yeah, back when I was at Lyman and Lyman is a famous prison in Colorado. So I put that in there. So like people who've done time in Colorado DOC, if they pick that up, they're like, oh, I was at Lyman too. Oh, I love these Easter eggs. So, you know, with all these kind of authentic sounds, links to people who know, it's a variety of music because there's even like kind of folk music on your label. There's all sorts as well and mm -hmm. different uh, orientations. I mean, yourself, Bia Shirel, and Simply Naomi. I don't know how old Simply Naomi is, but I think she's of a certain generation, right? Yes, she's a sweet yeah, well, amazing. <laughs> she looks really young. So it's a great variety. But in terms of what like unifies them, are you looking, she said, some authentic sounds to make, have it a little bit more raw, a little bit like more confessional, biographical? You know, what do you look for? Well, I think it's actually depends on the artist. You have some artists who are there. I, I think I'm probably 
maybe the most introspective artist in the world. All I do is write about stuff that I think about myself as present or future. But you had some people who are escapism writers and, you know, whatever they're feeling, they may write the opposite because they want to feel this. They may be saying it's like a happy song so they can feel happy. So I think it depends on the artist. We don't judge that. We don't judge the, the content. We judge the quality. You know, how good of, a, of an artist are you? How good of a musician are you? If you're trying to make me feel are you actually succeeding? Do I feel good when I'm listening to your record? And if you're, you know, a more introspective person like me, you know, Lizzie Hartfield, do I feel, you know, your journey? So I don't, I don't think we really judge the style or, yeah, the style of writer, just how capable are they in their style. And that's the beautiful thing too about music is that, you know, you could make an amazing song and the lyrics could just be, I love you, I miss you, I need you. Yeah, but the river of meaning underneath and the life and experience, I, I don't, you can't quantify it, right? Mm-hmm. So you spoke about what's so important, I can imagine, hope. Like when you were inside or for those of the artists you represent, you know, music being a place of hope and strength and resilience as your marking time. But how did music pull you through or some of the artists in the label? Wow, well, I can start with Sophie Naomi, actually. I was incarcerated with her. So I did my 10 years while she was serving a life sentence. She was incarcerated since the year I was born, or close to it. I think even before that. Yeah, even before that. I think it was 82. Yeah. Yeah, since 1982. 82, yeah, 82. That's well before I was, I mean, that was well before I was born. I don't think my father was even making babies at the time. And she was the choir director for 35 years in there. Uh, literally, you know, all she had was her music, her face, and she used that music to do a, at the TEDx that I did, a very, that he also found her, and they did something called, This Is Not My Home, The Lady Lifers, a choir of women lifers, and they sung this song, and they sung it with all their partners, so I mean, we, re- we rehearsed for probably two months, leading up into this thing, and every rehearsal, every time. Everybody was crying. It just, it just worked every time. And they, at the end, they started saying their names and where they were from and things like that and how much time they served. But in the beginning, they talked about how only two women were commuted between 1987 or 1986 and then, which was 2014. Uh, when that song came out on TEDx, it started a movement of realizing the people who were, you know, missing, you know, who were forgotten. These women lifers who've been in prison for 40 years and it started the conversation. And since then, Jay had over, over 15 commutes in prison in Pennsylvania. So it literally changed legislation, you know, her, her craft, her passion. Right. And that was the thing that was able to propel her and then others to do that. So that's like a beautiful story of how music impacted her life throughout the whole course of her incarceration. And also for me, it's the same way. I've, I've been a writer ever since I was a child. I've always leaned on that to kind of keep me sane, be my coping mechanism. It was pretty much the only healthy one I had at, at points in my life. And when I did the TEDx and very reached out and started writing the album and all that stuff, it, it kind of changed my trajectory of life. You know, I was able to get out and, you know, get my first place when I was in position. And from there, I mean, now I'm here. You know, I'm called executive director, doctor for records. So, but in everyday life, it has helped me just stay sane through some very, very difficult moments that I've had. Yeah, I mean, prison is such a homogenous environment. 
I mean, I've never been incarcerated myself, but you know, you just see that walking in, right? Everyone's wearing the same uniform, literally. So they kind of all look the same in a way from those far. So I think just going in and providing people opportunities to write their own lyrics, share their own stories is a extremely like self-empowering thing for people and makes them feel a very healthy sense of their own individuality, their own creativity, the creative process, if you will. Yeah, well, Naomi, I can't, you know, doing life, but she's free now, but she's so positive. It's like you wouldn't guess. I mean, just hearing the music, it's so... It's so appreciative of every like moment and the, the beauty of life. Well, if you could believe it, yeah, she's, she's like that in her, which was unbelievable. You know, so lifers, I, they typically have like a certain walk. You can like spot them. Just, you don't even gotta know them. Just know they've been here a long time and they're probably going to be here a long time. She's like, all right, cool. And, you know, they command respect everywhere. Some of them can be very, very, as you could understand, kind of miserable. They were in there for like, they've been in there for 30 something years. You keep coming in and out. They don't have a chance to even. So it's like frustration, you know, constantly. So they can kind of see life on this gloomy level. So there's a lot of life that's like that. And then there are some that are like this Naomi that every time they see, you know, if you come back, they say, I'm glad, I'm glad God kept you, baby. And they smile and, you know, they get whatever. So, noodles and shit and you know all that stuff when you come back and leave again they say and I bet I'll see you again baby I love you you know it's just that's how she was she was very very positive I don't know I don't know how I don't know what I didn't know how she would say God she would say the love of Jesus has been kept alive but I just I've never seen her have a distasteful look Love! 
And so she was able to get her freedom? She was able to get her freedom. She filed for transportation. They denied her all five votes. And then her roommate just was like, yo, you need to like, really do it again, like file it work again. So she wrote the letter and she said she put it in her Bible and just forgot about it. And she said one day she came in her room and something, God just said, send that letter. And she sent it in. Uh, she, the five no's turned into five yeses um, in a matter of a year or so. And now she actually works for Lieutenant Governor Federal of Pennsylvania. She's the conversation specialist. So she is, is other white person trying to get out. So our story is just amazing. Really powerful and inspiring. I'm just, I'm just glad to be along for the ride. You know. Mm-hmm. Me too. I can't imagine what that's like coming up for parole. Wow, but that is not quite the experience. So when you go into parole, like when you're on your way, your friends will tell you once you have been there, don't let them like set you. Don't let them get you out of your character. And I remember the first time I went up to parole, I survived the police involved shooting. So I was, I was shot multiple times. I was beat, death, right? And it was my time to go down there and talk about this situation. And I was wondering if I wanted to tell the truth or if I wanted to say what they want you to say. Because if you go in there with the truth, it's called not taking responsibility. You have to say exactly whatever is on their police report, whatever is on, you know. So that was one of the parts of it. Because they was basically trying to make it seem like I knew that these guys were cops and I, sh- I just shot this guy because he was cop, which wasn't true. But I remember putting on my wife's glasses. She, she wasn't my wife then. She was my girlfriend at the time. And she can't see it all. And I had perfect vision. So I remember stumbling down the walk. <laughs> 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 Trying to get there because I couldn't see. But I, I felt like I needed the glasses to make me look a little more, you know. Uh, I remember to cut my beard down a lot. I didn't cut it all the way off. I wasn't going that far. But I did wear my hair out with a ponytail, you know, I'm in the context and stuff. And I went in there and when I got to them asking me those questions, because they start tearing me down. They start saying, you're a horrible mom. Look what you did. Look what you left your kid. Now your kid is all fucked up. You, you're, you just like this. You're a dummy. They go in. They call you all kind of despicable, worthless, bad mom, you know. The horrible person, whatever you are and whatever your thing is, what they attack. So I was just sitting there and it came for me to tell the story. And I kind of balanced the two, you know, by saying, hey, it was a point in the time, which was the truth. It was a point in time where I did hear from, say, Philadelphia police, but it was like too late by then. It's already happening. So the shooting was already in progress. I mean, I remember them telling me that I was not taking responsibility. I still had came to this bar and I was still shooting fly and X, Y, Z. I remember my eyes starting to well up and I was like, I'm like, one of those, do it. Because even crying to them is like manipulating shit. You can't cry while they're taking it. You can't talk back. You just kind of have to take it. So I remember just kind of like self-absorbing it. And when I walked out and my eyes was like to the brim, the guard was like, did great. She was like, you're, you're, you're going to get ruled. Like you didn't want it to die. And I was just like, that's kind of crazy. Like, I just, you know, beat me down, you know. But in the end, I think I, I did get paroled the first try. And it's funny because there's some people who just can't do it. They can't allow you to talk to them like that. So they never get out, you know. So it's all about, like, talent and, like, how much verbal abuse you can take. 
And parole is different too in every state. So like I have a funny parole story in Alabama. Tamika Cole, who's one of our longtime artists, and she actually works with Nicole Fleetwood and stuff. She's a visual artist. I went to her second parole hearing. So she did get denied the first time, right? And then two years later, she came up again. And I'd known her for like three years at that point. So I was like, all right, I'm going to Alabama. I'm going to Montgomery. I'm going to speak on your behalf. So at the time, I had like super long hair, <laughs> ears pierced, you know, just looked like a total rocker dude. And also from up north, which in the south, just who is this guy? His name is Uriya. He is this die Jim Crow. What the hell? You know, but it worked. It worked. <laughs> Say what? But did you have a, a good pair of preppy glasses? <laughs> I actually did not. So yeah, I went there and it was like me, I think a faith person, a faith-based person who went volunteered into the prison who was African-American and her attorney on her behalf. And her attorney was a old white guy and uh, named Corky Hawthorne. Great name. And yeah, the panel was three people. Tamika wasn't allowed to be there. So like super different from PA. Like she's not even there. She's in the prison. It's just this total foreign thing in another county. You know what I mean? She was nowhere near Montgomery, blah, blah, blah. And uh, yeah, I, I said like, I, my name is very young. I'm the producer of this album. Cause that's all I was at the time named Die Jim Crow. And I just remember the whole parole board and two of them were black, but they were just like, what? Like, they just say that again? <laughs> they literally just told me to repeat it again. Like they didn't hear it. And I was like, die Jim Crow. And yeah, but then I waxed poetic about her and said like, she owns up to her crime and takes responsibility. And they uh, voted to let her go. Well, that's, uh, that's brilliant because then art is really doing you services, not just a healing process, but somehow that connection and you being able to speak her truth in her absence, which is very kind of weird saying that you, uh, you're both speaking about the inability to say the exact truth, but somehow convey it across. That's an artistry in itself, that kind of advocacy. Thank you. We were discussing parole. I was wondering, um, you know, BL, because you spoke about Simply Naomi, her music. Oh, yeah, for sure. It is a record on my Asada Troy album. It's kind of just about things that I have to share with the world and my experiences. It's a lyrical clinic. If you're not like a rap person, you might need like the lyrics or something. But <laughs> everybody here sings. Feeling. My self-esteem was kind of low. I had a demon in my 
my soul that's sick and teeth and made a hole without a filler. But I won't talk about it. My heart got chalk around it. Yeah. That's when I thought about it. Yeah. Just some shit I gotta say. Yeah. Yeah. Shit I carry every day. Yeah. This some shit that's on my heart. Yeah. I give them more than sickness. The more they sit in, the more I'm shifting, they mourn the difference. Some niggas getting your business, some niggas getting their feelings. I just get to the witness, the snitching co defendant. See niggas fake their religion, hitting Christians, and when they eating that chi chi, they envisioning chitlins. Ain't gonna get more specific. Go west and I hit the Pacific. I hope you fucking illiterate niggas know the difference. Yeah, I'm, I'm a victim of recidivism. I only be civilized in the prison system. Yeah. Religious stigma keep a sinner's vision. Uh, skin stigma's a bigger division. It can't be men and it's semen and demented. My window's tinted and my skin is, which one is it? When you violate my rights and my amendments. Same rights was never given to begin with. I'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission. Clinicians can't provide prescription for this sickness. I'm addicted to the digits, they addicted to syringes. Common sense is that we must conduct a business. Yeah. Just some shit I gotta say, yeah. Shit I carry every day, yeah. My man mom died while he was at child time. Baby mom miscarried while he was at commissary. It's kinda scary, cause this Sally's a drag who dresses in women fashion. Medea, they call her Tyler Perry. I could barely get fresh, wore that designer rarely. Till I did that math, like hold up that one I gotta carry. Till I grip that gat, like hold up that gun I gotta carry. These niggas wanna spill my blood in my prime carry. Spoiled milk, reminiscing on that rotten dairy. In this game, is one and done. We play for Kyler Perry. Draft picks from the body of the belly bottom beast. But when it's extra hollow in your belly, gotta eat. And when they plot and stop them, you can't let them battle feed. Even if I gotta fight in the Rockies, Apollo Creed. Spent countless nights in the county without a blink. But I ain't gotta sleep, motherfucker, I gotta drink. Yeah. Just some shit I gotta say, yeah. Shit I carry every day, yeah. This some shit that's on my heart, yeah. Where the fuck am I gonna stop, huh? There's so many threads there, you know, that prison is a business as, a, as well. I think we should address that later on. But I really see you in this long tradition of, I don't know if you see yourself as a, a protest singer or how do you, or which protest singers or performance poets you might draw inspiration or courage from, but it seems in that lineage. Yeah, it's funny. I've never considered myself that for a long time, but I think I've probably pushing away from it, like, purposefully for a while. But then I read this book hip-hop as a philosophical text and I was actually mentioned in the book and I was like yeah <laughs> like a lot of my existence is like against the society majority so just existing in this world just being born into the circumstances of war a lot of other places where I qualify as othered it's just in my existence pretty much to be in protest in the God unfortunately <laughs> I really enjoyed the pieces like a music, poetry, 
this combination of all of that and it kind of breaks knowledge into the idea of what it means to be in in the cancer space so that's why i wanted to ask a question like djc records is bridging the gap between the divide between the free world and encountering artists so what are the battles to that you, you face to produce and release said songs into what is considered the free world and how do you get your audience to understand? So when well, we try to let the music help them understand, that's the core we believe the art helps humanize more than anything we could say, more than like lecture we could get. It's in a music where I think that they can understand just primarily. But some of the issues that we face, it's a lot of red tape and bureaucracy trying to get into certain prisons. There's a lot of censorship in you know, certain states where they've acted in my familiar what you can say, you can put out because they have image issues. In general, there's some states, funny, it's easier to get in down south than it is up north. I will never probably have this conversation without bringing that up all the time because I just think that us as a society, we have these ideas of we think things or how we think things work. So you would think that getting it New York or Pennsylvania is easier than getting it in Mississippi or South Carolina. But that's actually not true. And even though down south they might have their things, I just find that really interesting based off of like the image of all these different states. But I think the typical biggest problem is censorship. Like you said, the North is less open to this type of music than the South, which, like I said, it, to me, it's topsy-turvy in my head because it's usually the other way around when it comes to things like that. So I also wanted to ask, in a sense, following up that question, if the red tape and bureaucracy with everything going on, how? Because, like, you know, everyone knows New York in a sense as the rap set, uh, the set of, like, you know, Jay-Z, and they talk about they won't exactly talk about the incarcerated, but they kind of, that has somewhat diminished the idea of the incarcerated life, using it as more of like a rhyming scheme rather than actually bringing impact to that. But then behind the scenes, they're like, oh yeah, we funded money into those kind of causes. How does that DGC record like more or less highlight those things? Yeah, well, I mean, for one, you know, I don't have the leverage yet to talk about shit, but I will say this. We've been around for a while and we're making a huge development push moving forward to try and get a lot more people on board as far as funding, dodging funds. But, you know, there's going to come in a couple of years, people won't be able to ignore the mission that we've been so far. And, you know, we do the work for grassroots. We do stuff without needing the cosigns. We just do it. We don't really care about the shiny celebrities who might say they're involved or lend their name or something. Like, I remember actually when I first started DJC back in 2013 and he helped encourage me and get me started, but he was connected to all these rappers like Prodigy, rest in peace, Prodigy from Mob Deep was still alive. He had done time, people like Jadakiss and The Locks. And he was like, yo, like they, all these guys are like doing stuff about talking about prison or whatever, or have been to prison, like just get them to be on the album. You want to have voices who have prison impacted, just get them. They're famous already. Just get them to do it. And I was like, very respectfully, no thanks. Cause even back then, like this has never been about just like the, the fame and the glory. It's about giving everyday people the opportunity to shine. 
And adding on to that, this is more relating to the audience that perceive the music. In the case of DJC Records, art specifically music is used as a form of freedom. How do you want listeners of music from DJC Records to perceive the work in general? Just open mind, open heart. That's it. Mm-hmm. I think the music speaks for itself. Right? So we start trying to shape it. This is how I want you to listen. And I think in the end, what our mission is to dismantle stereotypes around us in prison, of course. But what that means is, that means that if somebody's been listening to Territory, yeah, this album is freaking amazing. And you know how when you listen to something amazing, then you start looking into the artists and stuff, because now you want to know, where's this person from? Or, you know, how does this person like the songs? And now you start watching them and stuff. And then you see that Michael Tennyson is serving five life sentences. And he's been incarcerated since 1987, for murdering five people. And you're like... Wow. Like, I never thought that I could even relate anything in my life to this person or to a person that could do something like that. So subconsciously, what it does is it humanizes its people. And then maybe if you're a small business owner or something like that, then you may have never hired someone from a You may see people with arrest and you're like, nope, you just keep it pushing. But maybe from listening to that album, and you see this guy, he can apply for your job and he has a drug charge or something. Maybe you're not looking at it so crazy. Like, you know what, I'll get Awesome. And that interview may change, you know, your life in that group system. So that's like the ideal scenario. You know, there's so many people, I imagine, who they have, of course, they maybe they have done a crime and they're imprisoned and they're incarcerated for something they've done. Or sometimes it's circumstances, these things that happen or when you're so kind of young and crazy and hormones affecting your thinking and then hard to take back. But then you must have met a number of people also who are incarcerated and they didn't do anything wrong place, wrong time. And how do they cope with that? Or do they find music? Or you can just tell us some of those stories. Yeah, we work with some people who are wrongfully convicted or even just straight up innocent. So Leon Benson, who performs as L. Bentley 448, he's probably knock on wood on the brink of being exonerated fully for the murder conviction that he's now served coming up on 25 years for. And I've met several people who've had similar tragedies. Albert Woodfox, I actually had the extreme honor of recording Albert at his home. He passed away a month ago, but I was able to record him in 2019 at his home. And he was convicted for like a robbery, something that he did do. But then while he was in Angola, he was wrongfully accused and was completely innocent, as it was later proven, of the murder of a correctional officer. And he ended up serving 43 years in solitary confinement because of a crime within the prison that he did not commit. So it really runs the gamut from different kinds of fucked up. And there, you know, you can find cases that are just so draconian, so insane. Like in California, they have three strikes laws. I I think they probably appealed that or, you know, don't have that anymore. But there was like a guy who his third strike was stealing a pair of socks and he got a life sentence because that's how the law works. So... There's just a lot of crazy stuff that are still in practice. Like three strikes might not exist anymore in California. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. 
but there are definitely people who are still serving life without parole for, like you said, Mia, just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, and Pennsylvania in particular is a state where conspiracy, especially for the women, I say over half of the women life is for conspiracy. And they charge when it comes to a murder charge is life. In Pennsylvania, our life is natural life. There's no number attached to it. Never get out. And a lot of the women were just there. A lot of times they were like, we have a say in whatever happens. We'll probably use her bed. We have to lock somebody in, kick somebody there. A lot of them are Pennsylvania. So just the way our system is set up here in the state is horrible. Stuff like that, like the guilt by association type of charges, like conspiracy. Because if you were a person who said, hey, I didn't do it. I don't know what happened. But I, but I know this guy did it. You wouldn't get life. So, you know, you can't say what happened. And you're doing life because you couldn't say what happened. You're doing life for not saying what they, their truth instead of your truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, of course, in terms of this prison industrial complex, and I believe it's over a million incarcerated. After COVID, it's now around 1.9. So, I mean, what are some reforms that you would like to see or that you see happening? And how can arts or other initiatives like this also move it along? And Yeah, so September 20th, we will be rallying in Harrisburg um, to pass a bill called the Dignity Act in Pennsylvania, which will give free unlimited hygiene products to women incarcerated. Um, I'm not sure if you guys know, but they only give us two pads a day. So even the two can be a challenge. They tried to pass a law that gives us unlimited access to sanitary napkins, things of that nature, which is very mandatory trauma training um, for the officers so that they can better be equipped to deal with people who've been through a lot of things, I, you know, abuse, rape, and stuff like that. On September 20th, we rallied in at the Capitol to try and get these people on the floor. It has been passed through the judiciary and it's been so. There's tons of organizations of interest in the state of Pennsylvania. Yeah, there's an organization called Worth Rises that's doing work to abolish the 13th Amendment, because as you guys might know, it still allows for slavery to exist if you're incarcerated or convicted of a crime. I just found out about that yesterday. I thought that was awesome. I personally am really interested in abolishing life sentences and really shifting the narratives from the nonviolent offender saying, like, let's just release all the nonviolent drug offenders. Cause I think that some of the people who really deserve second chances have done 20, 30, 40, 50 years and maybe did commit violent crimes. And I think that we work with a lot of those people, by the way. And I think that those people really deserve to uh, be released on the merits of what they've accomplished inside and the people that they've matured into. I know life after, even if you are innocent and have lived a lot of your life in prison and they see the record and maybe people still have that fear. So I wanted to know how does DJC help transition one from that state to a sense of more normalcy in life, maybe in terms of like maybe helping get a job or helping get a housing, like those kind of pathways to live a sense of a normal life in the outside world. So there's a certain element, like, social to kind of be there for your artists. 
So like there was this book earlier, if you can show it to a parole area, we will. We had an artist who was just in a psychiatric place. They wouldn't allow us to do much. But I think us being able to at least call and check on them and make sure that they know that there's support on the outside that might have helped. So housing programs, varies depending on the area. I'm a lot more sharp in my South Carolina. But what I do know, I always share resources. That is the number one thing. I think recidivism will continue to drop drastically people can build their resources. So the first time I got out, I didn't know the places I could go. And that contributed to why I went back. But the second time I was able to get housing from this place, they paid my rent for six months and do X, Y. So just saying tap into our community. A lot of formerly incarcerated all stick together. We'll hire people coming straight out. My wife hires people coming straight out of Cambridge friends all the time. So getting them jobs is a very important Getting them to things, housing things, if it's a whatever it is that we can do. But you have to be aware and you have to go look for yourself and find resources because they're out there. It's just a matter of actually finding. So whatever resources us as a label, I wouldn't say that we had that network built that because we deal with so many people across the country that we could be from some we don't have like those relationships. But the places we're doing Yeah, we try to just always show up. One of our core values as a label is consistency. And we try to always write people letters back, always. We return their calls. We get to know them as best as we can while keeping it professional. And sometimes our albums might take a while to come out because we're backlogged or we're working on getting robust funding and stuff like that. But we always pull through. We always stay consistent with our artists and make sure that they know they have a very strong community on the outside. I realize America has a very punishment type of prison system rather than a reformed prison system in which some countries in Europe do not have a life sentence, but even if you commit murder, we have a system that builds the person's character, gives them education in prison. So how do you transcend that comparison in the American prison system, which has a lot more people in prison than most countries in the world? How does that reformism versus punishment play a role in the records and your perspective on incarceration in general? Well, I think that people who were convicted of a life sentence, who have grown and engaged in programs, engaged in mentorship of other residents inside, engaged in team building when we come in and we make music with them and they come in and they, they really will find artists throughout the whole prison and bring them in based on their talents, based on their merits. And just all working together to make something beautiful. Michael Tennyson is a great example. He was the individual BL spoke of not too long ago who murdered five people in 1987. And yet he, 30 years later, was able to bring this very diverse group of folks together at Territorial Prison from all walks of life and make this beautiful album that's strongly anti-racist, and pro peace building and, and growth. And so I think that America really needs to look at 
second chances in a hard way. Like it's not always going to be the simply Naomi's who, you know, yeah, they got life without parole, but they were just at the wrong place at the wrong time when their friend murdered someone. Um, we have to really look at people on a case by case individual basis. It's not one size fits all. You know what I mean? So when you look at someone like Michael Tennyson closely, sure, on paper, you just think, oh, five murders. Oh, my God, this, we're never touching this guy with a 10 foot pole. But then if you actually go in and you look at all the things that he's accomplished, you might say, you know what, let's consider maybe giving them a chance after 40 years. I think that in other countries, it's something that I want to research a lot more, like how they do it in Norway and Sweden. But I know that I think life sentences are no more than what, 20 years, some places, even 12 years. I'd imagine that people like, like serial killers, like a Ted Bundy, which is a little different than a Tennyson or people who've maybe engaged in like genocide, stuff like that would need to be under like a psychiatric kind of supervision, but it wouldn't be prison. I think that there are just more humane ways to treat people than the U.S. has got it going right now. We didn't speak so much of fury about your art beyond Diet Jim Crow because you're so heavily involved and we have worked in many disciplines. Yeah, I do video work a lot of for Diet Jim Crow. I do songwriting, poetry, uh, and collage. So a lot of visual work too. Neglect might even be a fair word to use. I mean, you know, but I, I love the journey I'm on as an artist. I, of course, would like love some help with operational stuff with DJC. I think that would free me up a little more to just focus on the creative. And then in turn, probably focus on my personal solo creative stuff as well. But it is awesome to do artwork for Dijon Pro and really pushes me to be a better artist. And it gets me in really good habits. Like you must finish this video at a certain time and like really try to work smart and not hard, trying to get better at that. But I would love to do a solo album. I love lyric videos because I'm a poet, so I love words and I love combining words and video. It's also super economical. Like you can make a lyric video for like a pretty lo-fi budget and make it amazing because it really puts emphasis on the words, which are like, after all, often the meat of a song. So I, I would love to do lyric videos. Just keep getting creative ideas and you know, just put them out. It's like the funnest thing in life. And I'm, I, I'm also just to tie back to DJC for a second. I'm really happy with all the awesome artists that like I've met on DJC. And I feel like my solo practice, it would be cool to work with them, like on my stuff in like a kind of different capacity and just see how that goes and have fun with that too. Thanks for asking that question. I never get asked that. And BL, as you reflect on your journey as you were you before you were incarcerated, I don't know the development of your voice. I also know that you, you know, you visit schools and universities. And so you've, you have this whole journey as you reflect on your voice and the turns it's taken. What do you think? Yeah, it's definitely taken some turns. So my whole life, I've been a writer. Writing was always a very personal thing to me. It was like for me, wasn't for an audience. And I think that. For a long time, that's how I was able to just like break so much of the volume that I was talking to them. 
it became something for like other people because I became a professional musician and it just got weird. It's like, you know, having a relationship with somebody, you know it, it's just one thing and then it becomes like this other thing. It's like, we're not the same. It's weird. So now I've been kind of focusing on working with some of my artists, writing system songs for them and their projects. I think I lean more into helping my artists or whatever it was that I was seeking in writing, I think I'm getting that from helping the artists. So now I don't need the writing in that capacity. I've developed like you know, some more open skills to my life and I'm not as unhealthy as I was before in that way. The relationship is different. It's not so much of a codependency. It's like when, you know, your relationship with your parents change because you need your parents a child. You depend on them to feed and all this stuff. They've been very conscious of the message that I want to give to people. And I also don't want it to be something that people have often heard. And I also think I'm just such a fan of music. I've been around so long that there's just a lot happening with my relationship with music. But it's a, it's a beautiful journey. I'm looking forward to, like, putting out my most thought-provoking project. This has been very thought-provoking, and it's, it is a beautiful journey. Uh, your individual artistic careers and the collective Dijim Co. Records. And so as you think about the future and education and politics, this whole prison industrial complex and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Ooh, well, why don't ever think that it can't be you? It can't be think that they're nice. And if you fall up to certain demographics, they're counting on YouTube. It will be by their account. They already have added you. Already are counting if you're a high risk, you know, young person. So, you know, just make an effort every day to prove the world. You know, you have to. I mean, it doesn't really matter until it matters. It's kids, you might think, like, I'm just like to avoid it. But I remember when I figured out that I was caught up in the matrix and it was not that it was too late, but I was already so I just wish that, you know, people took it serious that they're depending on us making certain decisions to keep this going. So don't ever think that you're in a demographic that doesn't count. Because when I was in Pennsylvania, PA State, it was a lot of white people. The majority, sixty percent. So just don't think that you're in a situation where it can't be you. Find ways to participate in fighting it and just keep your eyes open. Don't make it easier for the system to continue. Yeah, that was very well said. I, what can I add to that? I mean, I would say to have an open and curious mind always to do your research and to trust your instincts and follow that, follow your vision. If you feel like you're in a great community already, then stick with that community and build with that community. If you feel like you need to start your own, then do that. And that's what I did with Die Jim Crow. I was around a lot of different activist groups. Ah, they were all kind of not going anywhere. So I decided to start my own. And if you do that, then know that it might take a very long time to have that community where you feel like, yeah, like this is now my community. This is great. So be patient and um, 
also maintain your sense of urgency at the same time. It's a little bit of an oxymoron, be patient, but be urgent, but keep your eyes on the things that are long game and then know what things require your passion now and your follow through to other people now, because your actions are going to affect other people in the now very much so. And you need to stick to your word and follow through when that matters. And then have your vision in the back of your head at the same time playing in your mind and say, ah, you know, in five years from now, we'll all be at this place. I just want to also say if you're an activist, don't let your ideology get away from doing that you do. I hate when that happens. It happens sometimes in this space. But you know, in doing we have to we have to have relationships with departments of collections. We have to have relationships with all different kinds of people that, you know, we don't primarily, you know, our ideologies may not be the same. But that's not going to stop us from getting the work done. You know, so whatever your perfect world is, that's fine. It's not here right now. So operating this book. Yeah, those are very important messages, both and that you show through your urgency and passion. So thank you, B.L. Sherelle and Theory and Die Jim Crow Records for all you've done to bring healing and understanding through your music that helps us appreciate the realities of mass incarceration, prison culture, and for your celebration of voices of those who often remain invisible and unheard. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for having us. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Naomi Zidon with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Naomi Zidon. Digital Media Coordinator are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbath. The songs on this episode include Battle Cry by Michael Tennyson, Melody by Simply Naomi, Six by B.L. Sherelle. Wintertime was composed by Nicolas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative work for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.